Thank you for tuning into the Apostolic Pentecostal Church podcast. You are currently listening to one of our iGrow series lessons. If you're in the Bloomington, Illinois area and want to sit in person, feel free to join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. for Bible study and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for worship in the Word. Can't make it in person? No big deal. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and search Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Either way, we'd love to fellowship and worship with you. We hope to see you. We're good. So we are talking about the Bride of Christ tonight. And the scripture that I want us to start things off with is found in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. It tells us this. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Tonight, we're studying the Bride of Christ. Come on in. Come on in. Just be late. Here on the Bride of Christ. I love it. And you know what? I'm going to rewind really quick because this verse is so good. I want you to hear it. All right. It's actually, I have like so many favorite verses in scripture, but this one is just so beautiful, um, especially when we take time to dive into what God is really teaching us about the bride of Christ. So one more time, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 tells us, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So our focus tonight is being the bride. And what does it mean to make ourselves ready? Um, before we can really dive into that, we need to have an understanding that marriage is important to God. Would everybody agree? Marriage is a big deal, a big deal to God. When you look at, uh, at Scripture holistically, it's amazing to me to consider that God started the word off with a wedding. And he ends the word with a wedding. And weddings, whenever you look at the Old Testament, they're all throughout there. And the New Testament, again, they're all throughout there. And what's really interesting to me, whenever you start diving into Jesus, it's beautiful to think that the first recorded miracle is something that he was doing at a wedding. Right? Because marriage is important to God. It's this picture for us, and for us as the church, and it's also meant to be this picture for the world around us. Um, it's, it shows the world and us that God's desire, what God's desire is for us. And this marriage that's going to happen at the end of time is one that God has used, God has used all of time to prepare for it. And we're all invited to partake in it if we want to be there. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, he explains that the relationship between husbands and wives is like the relationship between Jesus and the church. In that chunk of scripture, what Paul is saying, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We 
our Jesus' bride. We are Jesus' bride, and throughout the Old Testament, God used the symbolism of marriage to demonstrate things about his relationship with us and also our relationship with him. As we, as we read the word, we are saying time and time again that God, he's pursuing his people, and he's pursuing us with this passion, and his plan of redemption is to restore us, right? That broken relationship that we currently have God is wanting to restore us back to him. I wish we had time to really dive into the book of Hosea. Has anyone read the book of Hosea? Yeah. If you haven't, and even if you had, go back and read the book of Hosea. And as you do, it can feel a little offensive, but place yourself in the role of Gomer. Okay? Um, because that's who we are. Gomer was the prostitute that Hosea was married to, right? And she keeps prostituting herself in that, their relationship. And Hosea, God tells Hosea, he's like, I need you to go back for her. I need you to buy her back. And she keeps breaking Hosea's heart, and God keeps telling him, go, pursue her. And that whole book is this beautiful picture of God's unrelenting love for us. So take time, and I promise you will be a beautiful mess after you read that, just realizing God's um, powerful love for us. Like That's how much God loves for us. Um, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus is that embodiment of our bridegroom. He so faithfully and willingly gave up his life for the very one that he loved. And he made a promise to us to be faithful. He said he was going to be faithful to the church. And in doing so, he laid out his expectations for us as his bride. So who is the bride? We are the bride, right? We are the bride, all of us. The church is made up of many, 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 many members. And all of us being here tonight, we are all members of that bride, that, that one body. Um, and we're all looking forward to that wonderful day whenever Jesus is going to return and we're going to experience the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of time, all of time has been used to culminate to that one moment when we are going to see our groom on that glorious day and we get to play the part of the bride, the woman, the wife who has made herself ready. Um, what I really want to focus us in on tonight is what, what being the bride really means to us. How do we make ourselves ready, and how do we meet those expectations that I said that Jesus had laid out for us? If we look at that verse in Revelation, in terms of today, in terms of today's cultural climate, um, we can look at it and we can kind of have this eh, attitude, right? Like we look to Hollywood, we look to all the relationships around us, and we can see. People in Hollywood, they're like marrying someone new every other month, you know? And if we look statistically speaking, you know, marriages have a 50-50 chance of surviving. So it can cause us, when we look at Revelation and we, and we look at what we see around us, we're just like, eh, does it really, how, how much does this really matter? Is this really a big deal to me? Um, I went in and I, I looked at some studies to see more about kind of what is our mentality of a culture 
when it comes to, to marriages today. And the study that I, I really dug into said that for the first time in history, people are viewing marriage as an option instead of a necessity. Millennials, which I guess I'm an old millennial, and I don't like being classified as a millennial all the time, but I am. I am, and it says that millennials are getting married later as they have shown skepticism towards marriage, whether that be because they witnessed their parents get divorced or because they think lifelong cohabitation may be more convenient and, real, and a realistic option than the binding legal and economic ties of marriage. This quote from the author of that article, she says this, she says, this lack of formal commitment, in my opinion, is a way to cope with anxiety and uncertainty about making the right decision. In previous generations, people were more willing to make that decision and figure it out. Whatever the reason for holding off on marriages, these trends show how the generational shift is redefining marriage, both in terms of what is expected in marriage, when to get mar married, and whether or not marriage is even a desirable option. So we're seeing like this radical shift, I'd say like even in the last 12 years, we've really seen a dramatic shift on what marriage means to people. And it's not doing the word of God. It's not helping us whenever it comes to understanding what the word of God is saying at all, because what we're seeing played out is so drastically different from what God originally said and what he means in his word. Um, in a way, it seems to really water down that significance of what we're reading in the word. Um, and how he's really using these words specifically and marriage specifically as a parallel to explain the preparation that's required of us that we all have to walk through if we really want to step into that place with him in eternity. So did God mean for us to look at something like this with that eh, attitude? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God meant for us to look at us, look at this with this attitude of this reverence. This, it's this holy thing that we should be so excited about. So to really get an idea of the depth or the magnitude of God, what God was really saying, um, we need to go back. We need to take a step back in time, and we really need to look to see what was happening in the culture when this was written. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through what an ancient Jewish wedding was like. And we're going to see what they did culturally, and when you do you are going to find treasure. I promise you, we are going to find treasure tonight. And God is just going to wow you with so, how wonderful he really is. There's so much beauty to viewing Jesus as the bridegroom and ourselves as the bride. And the significance of what this word is saying is really elevated and focuses, focuses us in just really drastically when we take that time to dig. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32 tells us, can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So tonight's deep reflective question that I want you all to take away and pray over and really allow God to scrape all the gunk out of us with is, have we forgotten our attire? So ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad that there are some men in here tonight. So glad. We all have a wedding to prepare for. It's a little weird to think of the guys as the bride, but that's what the word says, and we'll, that'll be more clear one day. 
but we're all going to be the bride of Christ. <clears throat> so we need to make sure that we're dressed right. Whether you're a man or a woman, we have got to have the right attire on. So let's talk about what did that ancient Jewish wedding look like. It was way more than what we see today. And it all begins with this betrothal. We're going to walk through that process high level. In the betrothal, betrothal the father of the bridegroom presented the bride with a contract. That contract is called a ketubah. I have no idea. Don't laugh if I'm saying it wrong. It's a contract. That's what we care about. Uh, this is a contractual agreement that was written by the groom. It's presented to the bride in front of these witnesses. In it, the groom, he outlines these actions that he's going to take. He makes her promises, and he makes different statements. The bride is then asked if she is willing to step into this agreement. This agreement was one that was purposed to safeguard that bride. Hey, that is so important for us to take away. It protected her and it outlined what was going to happen to her if for whatever reason the groom chose to step away from that commitment. The bride herself was allowed to either receive that contract or reject it. It was her own free will whether she wanted to step into that betrothal or not. With this contract, it included this gift called a mohar. The mohar, it outlined the details of the contract, and when that contract was agreed upon, the bride was given that gift. And the gift that was given was left for the bride as a remembrance for that covenant that she had stepped into. This remembrance was used to help her to grow to love that man. Okay, keep in mind, a Jewish bride, a Jewish groom, they didn't always know each other. Oftentimes these are arranged marriages, all of that. So we often think of two people coming together and they love one another. That wasn't always the case. So that bride would use that gift to help her to fall in love with him, to prepare for that wedding day. Um, the bridegroom would then leave for somewhere between 9 to 12 months. And he would go and he would prepare a home for them. Before he would return, <coughs> sorry, during that time, the bride, her responsibility was to be working on her garments. She's preparing intentionally for that day. And she would be intentional about keeping herself from getting distracted. She would be keeping herself chaste. She would be waiting for that return, preparing herself for that groom. When the home was ready, it was then that the groom, he would, he would send for he, her, he would, in front of him, he would gather some of his friends and he would send them with a trumpet. And they would blow the trumpet and let the bride know that the groom was on his way. When the bride heard the trumpet, she would get ready. She would gather up her virgin friends and um, they would prepare for that bridal procession to happen. In preparing, they would get their lamps that were used to light the way. The bridegroom would arrive any time between sunset and sunrise. Like a thief in the night, that groom would lift up his bride and carry her home to that home that he had prepared for them. And once they were there, then the marriage would actually happen. They were married, and then there was like this seven, at least a minimum of a seven-day celebration where they would just be celebrating their new life together. So learning about this custom, you really can't 
help but see how it prophetically points to Jesus. Would we all agree? We hear lots of, lots of similarities there. So now what I want to do, we've learned about their customs, so now let's start applying this to us. We are the bride, okay? To do so, we're going to break this wedding custom. We're going to break it into three distinct parts. The first, I want to talk about that mutual commitment, that contract, contract that was made between the bride and the groom. This, this time that commitment is presented and either the bride, she accepts it or she rejects it. Remember, it was her own free will. Okay, for us, that's the same thing for us. We don't step into a relationship with Jesus being forced, right? We have been given that gift of free will where we are either going to choose to accept that or we're going to reject that. When we look at the covenant that God has presented to us, we're going to go way back to Abraham. Whenever God outlined that covenant with him. God and Abraham, they made this covenant together, and that covenant was mutually beneficial. In that covenant, God was voluntarily vowing to Abraham. He was saying to Abraham, by myself, have I sworn to be your partner. If my promises fall or they fail, I become your slave. You own me, and I put my bondage, myself in bondage to you. That's what God was saying to Abraham. He's like, I mean this so much that I'm going to make this promise with you. This is, this is the same. Have you, sorry, I'm getting choked up a little bit just thinking about that. Um, God, he gives us that promise. And he reminds us time and time again. We read over and over and again in the Old Testament specifically, he says, I am the Lord who keepeth covenants. Right? Just like that bride, that Jewish bride, she had that gift of remembrance to say, hey, this covenant stands. God is telling us over and over again, this promise, this promise is yours. I meant it. Um, so this is the same covenant that's being presented to us. Anyone who steps into that covenant with Jesus has that very same promise that God gave to Abraham. Now remember, I said in that Jewish wedding that once that covenant, that contract was accepted, that the mohar, the gift was given. Okay? And that was paid for by the groom. This was like, it was a sum of money. What I found was it varied from marriage to marriage. But it was known as the bride price. When we look to how this correlates to us as the bride, we need to remember that we were born into sin, okay? As humanity, we sold ourselves after the fall. At Calvary, we were bought with a price, and we, when we take time and we look at the crucifixion, we know that Jesus' very last words before he gave up the ghost were, it is finished. When we take the time to translate that back to see what did that really meant, Jesus was saying, paid in full. Paid in full. He was paying for that, for his bride in full with his life. That's our mohar. Our mohar is the price he paid for us on Calvary. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 tells us, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It is this gift he has given us that serves as our reminder while we wait, while we wait for our groom to return. 
It's that gift that he left for us that helps us to fall deeper and deeper into love with him, right? I said that Jewish bride, she used that gift to help her fall in love with him. We do that same thing, and we fall deeper and deeper in love with him as we wait. The next stage of wedding is the betrothal. The marriage contract has been agreed on, the mohar has been given. Now the couple is officially betrothed or engaged. And again, we can't really view this in terms of what engagement means today because it's so wishy-washy sometimes when we see things played out around us. This, this was way more than anything that we see today. A betrothal, it means that they were legally married, but they didn't live together yet. Give me one second. If the bride or the groom chose to walk away from that betrothal at that point, it would actually require a divorce certificate, okay? And um, <clears throat> then that, that contract that they agreed on beforehand, that would come into, the, into play and the bride would be protected by that contract. This time of betrothal is looked at as a period of sanctification, where the couple, they're preparing themselves for each other for that marriage, that moment whenever they're going to become one. When we parallel this to ourselves, we see sanctification. It's, it's a process that we are all, every one of us, we are called to walk through. It's this process of making something holy, okay? Freeing a person from sin and purifying them. Once we're baptized and we're filled with the Holy Ghost, we step into that betrothal with Jesus. We are betrothed to him. We belong to him. We, we don't live together with him, though, do we? Not yet. No, we don't. And it's much the same as that Jewish betrothal, right? Our bridegroom, he left us, and he's preparing a place for us. And we heard that whenever we read John chapter 14 and 3. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I mentioned the betrothal for a Jewish wedding would last anywhere from 9 to 12 months. And the bride, she would not know exactly when her bride was coming back. Much the same we don't know, right? We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know when our groom is going to return for us. And Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it, it echoes that. It says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. <clears throat> this is where we are today. We're waiting for our groom. It's during this time that we are supposed to be just like that Jewish bride. We are supposed to be intentionally focusing ourselves, getting ready for that wedding day. We too should be remembering our own covenant with the Lord and preparing our own garment for that day. And God tells us exactly what that garment should look like. We find a glimpse of it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. It tells us, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this giving all diligence to add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. So what is our garment made of? We just read it. It's made up of diligence. It's made up of faith, virtue, 
knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. All of those things. That's what our garment is supposed to look like. And I don't know about you, but when I read that and I think about that as, as a garment, I think about those characteristics that God is telling us to, to put on. That is one of the hardest garments that I have ever tried to put on. Sometimes we might have one piece of that garment like, yeah, that's fitting. But now this side's not fitting, you know, and we might have something right now. But we go in for a fitting again and now something else feels off. Right? It's that continual fitting, I guess, when we go in and we measure ourselves up. God, do I have this, this part figured out? It takes time. It takes a lot of time to get that garment to fit just right. Um, Peter, some of you were in the lesson with about Peter last week. And Peter, he, he gives us a message and he's really showing us that this garment is one that we're constantly growing into. Oftentimes today, brides are like, I gotta not grow into it. I gotta lose something to fit into it. No, God is saying, you grow into this, sister. You know, he wants us to grow into that. And Peter, he really, he tells us to continue to grow. And in that growth, it starts out surface level, very surface level, but then it stretches deep within every piece of us and it really like I imagine that last piece that he mentions mentions is charity and I just imagine that love that's that crowning piece that just makes everything look so beautifully I told you earlier that all brides have a choice they either had that choice to accept or reject that contract that was presented to her well as a bride we are presented another choice whenever we step into this section um, during this time of proposal, there is a right way to walk through that betrothal, and there's a wrong way to walk through that. And so our choice is, you know, which path are we going to take? Are we going to be diligent? Are we going to do what Peter's telling us to do? Or are we going to kind of kick our feet back and kind of try to relax our way to it? So not all of us choose to undergo this time of continual growth. And that truth is, it's like strikingly outlined when you take time and dive into the parable of the virgins. And I want to draw our, our attention to that. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. It says this, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, 
for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let's talk about the, the job of those virgins right now. Okay? The job of the virgins was to go out and to meet that bridegroom. They were told to wait. They were told to wait for him. And that waiting required a light, which really should sound pretty simple. All you've got to do is take a light. They had to grab that lamp and wait. But what we find when we read that parable is it required more intention than some of them were willing to put into it. Brother Paul, he gave us this really great message about light several weeks ago. And if you can go back, I don't know, it was like three, four weeks ago, go back and listen to that. And I'm not going to do it justice at all, but basically what he's telling us is Jesus is the light. Okay, go back, listen to it, and it will just blow your mind. <clears throat> the gospel is light. Jesus is the light. Those who took oil with them had that light. The kind that didn't go out. And we, when we focus in on that parable, and we, we start to see there are two groups that emerge in the, the parable of the virgins, right? We've got those that had the light and those who didn't, who, which really is those who were sincere and wise, those who were hypocritical and foolish. Okay, so we've got these two groups had emerged whenever we look at that parable. So what did the foolish look like? That light in the parable is often referred to as the lamp of profession. Okay, the foolish, they only had enough oil for the here and now. They didn't have any oil in their vessel with them. They had that lamp of profession. It was in their hand. They looked the part, but they didn't have anything to pull from whenever that waiting extended longer than they had initially anticipated. How many of us in our walk with the Lord, how many of us have had something unexpected happen? Everybody? Yes, absolutely. How many of us have had to wait on an answer to prayer? Yeah, like years. A long, crazy time. Yeah, we, we all have. These women, they weren't prepared for that. They weren't prepared for that at all. They were like a plant with no roots. Okay, they, you know, we talk about the seeds. They, they were the seed that fell on the stony ground. They sprang up real quick. They looked the part, but whenever the sun came beating down on them, they shriveled, they withered, and they fell over. They were, they couldn't stand the heat of what they were enduring. They quickly faded. Again, they looked apart. They went along with the crowd, but they were not able to endure until the groom's coming. They had this vain hope. It, it wasn't rooted and it wasn't lasting. And we all go through valleys of life, right? And they're different for all of us. Um, and those valleys, they will all try to put out our lamp of profession. Um, they'll challenge us to the point where it tries to steal the light that we do have, the light of Jesus that's placed within us. You know, these women, they didn't see a need for true relationship with Jesus until what they thought they had was gone. This lets us know that we have got to get to that place where we see our, our real and true need for Jesus now. Now, they saw that need 
but their re realization of how powerful that was came too late. Make sense? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19 tells us, We are to be laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. These foolish virgins, they had not taken time to prepare themselves a good foundation. An unexpected time came to them, and they, they lacked the ability to hold on until their bridegroom came. The foolish, they then, they go to the wise, and they ask them to share. Seems like, why not? Why can't you share with me? But those wise women, they refused. The wise, they had this understanding that we all have to get. They, they knew that they had to give an account for themselves. They knew that they only had enough for themselves. They said, I can't give you what I have. I can't give you what I have. You know, I liken it to me as a, a mother. I can't give our children my faith. I want to. My heart wants to give them that. I can't give that to them. That's something that the Lord has to open their eyes to. It's like we get so frustrated whenever it comes to talking about the oneness of God with people. We see it so clearly, but until Jesus grants that revelation, it's not there. It has to come directly from God. It's that same thing. These wise women understood that a true relationship with God, we've got to do that work. We've got to really dig. We've got to really search. That's on our own. That's a personal thing that we can't get. I can't get my mom's faith because I, she wants to give it to me. She loves me. But she can't, even though her heart wants to. I've got to get that for myself. So there they are. They, they, the wise women, they said, you know, go get it for yourself. You've got to get this for yourself. The, those wise women, they knew that grace, that light of Jesus, it takes time for us to receive. Um, we all start with that simplistic foolish, that, I don't think it's foolish, that simplistic view that those foolish women stalled out at, okay? And that's okay that we start with that simplistic view, but we cannot stay there. We think when we're in that state, you know, we, we think we've got understanding. We think that we've got God figured out, that we've really received this true light, but as we continue to dig, we find there's way more digging to do. I was just telling uh, someone recently, I'm like, you know what? This whole year, God has been telling me, Jessica, you have not got a clue. <laughs> you know, like, you think you have this figured out, but you really have no idea. And I, that's just what it is with our relationship with God. You know, we've got to get past that simplistic stage and allow him to really try to stretch our roots because there's just so much stretching to be done. So now those wise women, they sent off the foolish. They said, you know, you go get that for yourself and then come back. So now let's shift our focus and we're going to look at those wise women. Okay, because we want to pattern ourselves. we got to be aware of what the foolish did so we don't repeat that. But we want to pattern ourselves off of what those wise women chose to do. Those wise women, they had that same lamp of profession. Okay. But their lamp of profession was different. 
because theirs had the ability to stay lit through the weight. They had an understanding and they thought enough to take extra oil with them. Okay? They took extra oil with them. Write that down. That is another one of those deep thoughts that we've got to continue to process and really allow God to challenge us with and asking ourselves and asking God, you know, God, am, am I taking extra oil with me? Have I allowed you to pour extra oil into me? So what does that mean? What does that mean that they took extra oil with them? I believe that uh, God gives us a good understanding of what that means whenever we jump back to the Old Testament. Anybody ever notice whenever you're studying the Old Testament and the New Testament, the stuff that we're learning about in the New Testament, it suddenly grows these crazy deep roots whenever you start to connect what God is telling us in the Old and the New. It's remarkable. It's so remarkable and it's so exciting. So this is exactly what happens when we take time and we look back to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings is a really awesome book. Take time to read it because there's a bajillion things in there that are amazing. So 2 Kings chapter 4, in that we read about the woman whose husband has died. She's in debt. She's got a, a couple sons. She has sons. Um, and all she's got is this pot of oil. She had nothing but that bit of oil. And she talks to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha tells her, go gather all the vessels that you can. So she sends her son, her sons to gather as many as they can. Goes to their neighbor, goes and finds whatever vessels they can get their hands on. And then they take them into their home and they shut the door. And the woman, she begins to pour that little pot of oil. And that oil, it miraculously, it pours this one pot of oil. I don't know how big it was, but it was one. And she's pouring this oil into all of these vessels. And she gets to the last vessel, and she fills it. And what happens? The oil it did not stop until every vessel was filled. What we have got to take from this specific record is that that oil poured as long as there was a vessel. That oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. It does what we cannot do on our own. And when we jump back from there to the parable of the virgins, we see so clearly that only the ones with the oil were permitted into the marriage. The wise virgins, they took time to catch that oil. Right? We look at that widow. Shoot, that, those vessels were catching oil. We are the vessel. And we have got to catch that oil like those wise virgins had determined to do. They understood it was that oil that was going to fuel that flame of their life. It was the oil that was going to provide the light that they needed when their bridegroom was coming and it was going to light the way. So how do we take time to catch that oil? I don't know exactly what the wise virgins did to get their oil, but how do we today 
determined to catch that oil because God is waiting for us to become empty so that he can start pouring into every single one of us. Well, it's found by creating structure. We get that oil by creating structure into our lives. We have to give that oil, that spirit of God, a vessel to come into. We do this by having private devotions. We have private devotion times, just you and God. Sometimes we can be intimidated. I don't know where my Bible is. Uh, we can become intimidated to open the Word of God by ourselves. And I would say, whenever I first started diving into I don't have the Word all figured out, so I'm not even going to pretend like I do. But the first time I really started digging into my Bible, I was intimidated. I told God, Lord, I don't understand these these and thous and shouts, and I, my mind can't grasp these. I need help. That's okay. God takes our simple minds, and it's remarkable how he will open up our minds and grant us understanding to what all of those words mean. And he'll do it on his own. We can go, we can look those things up, but God himself will start to give you that understanding. And that Bible should not be an intimidation factor. And if you see it as an intimidation factor, you need to understand that is not God. That is not God fighting you. The next way that we can um, create structure and allow ourselves to become that vessel is daily prayer. Daily prayer. Whether we have time or we think we don't have time, God wants to hear from us. Right? Just like my husband and I, there's some days we talk a lot. There's some days we just really, maybe we don't talk very much because it's a really busy day. And sometimes I'm tired at the end of the day or sometimes he's tired and we just don't get a whole lot of words together. But at least there's that open line of commitment or communication, right? That daily prayer. And prayer doesn't have to be something. There are some amazing prayer warriors that we have all heard. I can't pray like that. But I know God still hears my prayers. He just wants to hear us talk to him and grow in our relationship. And those words come as we develop that relationship with him. Also, another thing in creating that structure is dedicated time of fasting. Who likes to fast? No one. No one. No one, because it's not fun. It's not fun denying our flesh. I ask the Lord to forgive me, and I don't like fasting. It, it takes a lot of talking myself into it and battling myself to stick with it. But we need that. It is... You can tell how out of control your flesh is whenever you commit yourself to a, a fast. Do you all agree? Because you're like, I just want that cup of coffee. I just want that Snickers. You know, I just want, I'm hungry. But dedicated time of fasting, it really is true. Like our spirit is, um, it's more aware, right? Or it's more sensitive whenever we're taking that time and committing to that fast. This, all these three things, three simple things that we make to be these monumental walls or mountains that stand in our way, um, these are three keys to really developing a personal walk with God. And that, that personal walk that God desires for us, it stretches far beyond this Wednesday night service. 
stretches far beyond our Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, all of that good stuff. It's a daily walk with him. Um, and all of this requires dedication and intentionality. Completely dedicated, even when our flesh is like, I just want a cup of coffee, right? If, if, you, go, if you don't have these practices in your life, <clears throat> you really can start this by taking just a few moments a few moments every day, and it's really remarkable. I think I've shared this a whole lot of times. Whenever I truly decided I was ready to commit <clears throat> my life to God, I remember telling him, I said, God, I got five minutes for you. I got five minutes for you every day. I can give that. And those five minutes, they felt eternal. It really felt hard. But over time, it's just your, your spirit begins to crave that time, and it's amazing how um, just those five minutes can stretch to 30 or however much you really have time for in no time. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, <clears throat> so we find this call to dedication and intentionality. It's echoed whenever we read Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. It says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what your Lord, or when, what hour, <laughs> I butchered that. Let me start over. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. The wise virgins, they had an understanding it could happen at any point between sunset and sunrise. Okay? And they accepted the fact that they really had no idea when that was going to happen. So they diligently prepared for that unexpected moment. So they went out to watch. Their watch, it shows us that they took it seriously. Took it very seriously. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what the ancient Jewish bride was doing during her time away from her groom. She spent time with him for a very short while as that price he paid was realized. Okay? And she chose to receive that covenant promise. But now, while she's waiting for him, she's working out her own salvation. She understood that her groom had given her this covenant this covenant, and she was going to protect that covenant herself. And in return, she chose to protect what had been given to her. She was using her time to grow in love with that man that, again, she didn't necessarily know before she was committed to him. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 tells us, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. These wise women, this wise bride, spends time walking circumspectly. When you're walking circumspectly, you are, you're carefully looking at how you're living. You're open 
to being challenged to say, maybe I'm not right. Maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I need help understanding. She's honest with herself about what she needs to improve on. What behaviors need to stay and what behaviors need to go. This wise bride is being mindful of her behavior. And she's staying alert exactly like the Apostle Peter warned. He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So that wise woman, again, she's walking, she's walking circumspectly. That's how we need to be walking every day. And that's how that wise woman was preparing her garment. She wasn't overly confident in her flesh, like we see specifically in Peter. Right? Peter was so confident in his flesh. No, she, she was heeding Peter's warning whenever he was saying, stay alert. And she had her eyes, they were wide open to what was happening around her. Jewish couples. So they, they didn't see each other prior to the wedding. Right? I've already told you, they didn't see each other prior to that wedding. But what they did is they would send each other notes. And they would really focus that time apart to prepare themselves individually for that wedding day, which is exactly what we need to do. Okay? We are not seeing our groom before that precious wedding day or when, before that marriage supper of the Lamb. But we do get to spend time with him in prayer. Those prayers are like our love notes that those ancient Jewish couples would send to each other. That's, and we, we get to spend time interacting with our Bible. That is God's love letter to us. He's outlining specifically all of his promises, his overwhelming promises for us, and all of his expectations, all of those things that that contract that that Jewish groom outlined, the Bible is that for us. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. And he gives us that word to help us to fall in love with him. Right? We're falling in love with a God that we've not seen with our own eyes. And it's a beautiful thing. So we as the church have a groom who has given us that covenant. His covenant, it protects us. But what are we doing to protect it for ourselves? What are we doing to protect our side of what he has given it's our personal dedication, our walk to him that allows us to protect those promises that he has given to us. We find in the parable that the groom, if we're going back to the parable of the virgins, the groom, he, he isn't immediately there. And we find that there's this common fault that exists between those two groups that we identified, the wise and the foolish. And the, the common fault is that they both slumbered and slept. Okay, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect at all. Um, we all go through times, we already talked about it, that are going to challenge that, that lamp of profession that we have. Um, but we can find ourselves, too, where we're in this place where we're kind of falling asleep when it comes to our walk with the Lord. 
we might find ourselves giving a little here, giving a little there. You know, we've set a boundary, but now suddenly we're like, oh, we can move this boundary. And we can find ourselves really giving when it comes to our morning prayers or our daily Bible reading, all of those things. We can kind of start to let those things go. And we need to be careful in those moments because that's having a big impact on our spiritual lives. And we're starting to fall asleep just like even those wise women did in this parable that we read. We go through those desert times, and it's those desert times that are going to challenge us in that walk to try to get us to fall asleep. Or it's those times whenever prayer becomes super difficult, and we just we don't have any desire to get into the Word at all. Or we're going through the motions. We're less focused on eternity, and we're more focused on all of the daily distractions that can kind of overwhelm us. We find in those moments, whenever we go back to the parable, we find now there's a big difference between those two groups. Okay, there's that cry that goes out from the bridegroom, from his friends, that the bridegroom is coming. Everyone at that moment, everyone wakes up. When the bridegroom is getting ready to, to pick up the bride, whenever it comes back to that ancient Jewish wedding, the groom, I mentioned to you earlier, but I want to circle back to it. The groom would send his friends ahead of him, and they would have a, trump, tr a trumpet to say, hey, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. It's here, again, that we see the difference between those two, two groups of women. Everyone in that moment, when they heard that the bridegroom was coming, they all got up and they trimmed their lamps. Okay? This is symbolic of preparation. Everyone would remove that charred piece of the wick and they would move that fresh wick up so that that flame would be reignited. It would start to, to light things up. It would be enhanced, replenishing that flame. The wise, although they had fallen asleep, they were able to quickly get that flame going again. Hey, we have those moments. We've gone through a dry time, but it's amazing how remarkable God is able to reignite that flame. Right? Things are not lost in that moment. These wise women, they had oil that they had taken with them, that they had taken time to store, and they had that oil to pull from. The foolish, however, they had their wick ready to go, but there was no oil in their vessel to pull from. And it was then that they remembered. It was then that they had that revelation. But they brought nothing with them. Nothing with them, and there was no light to light their way. The wise virgins we've already talked about, they sent them away to gather their own oil. So the third stage of that ancient Jewish, Jewish wedding that I mentioned, it, it involves a marriage. Just the same as that ancient Jewish wedding, the bridegroom, he would come without anyone knowing with certainty when he was going to arrive arrive, it was then that he would scoop up his bride like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night, he would carry her away to the home that he had prepared for her. And it was then that they would finally, after all of that time waiting, all of the unknown for the bride, it was then that that marriage would happen. And like I said, they would celebrate for seven, at least seven days straight. Can you imagine? We would all be exhausted after day two. <laughs> but they, they just celebrated. They knew what a joyous thing it was. 
for us, when we look at it, this same thing, it's a time when we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate with Jesus in a wedding ceremony that includes the marriage supper of the Lamb. That one thing where we all get to be united, united that joyful day, whenever all of this time that we've waited, all of this investing in our relationship, all of those promises we are finally united. We get to be with him and never separated, never separated again. And we step into that place in eternity with the Lord. And that is going to be a glorious day for the bride who has spent time, that wife who hath made herself ready. But we can't look at this day and forget about those foolish virgins. Because it is purposeful that God placed that message in his word. And it's very needful that we pay attention to what happened to those women. It is during their time away where they're trying to get that oil and they finally gather it. But the bridegroom, he's already come. He's already come and scooped up his wife, gone in to where the marriage is going to happen. The door has already been shut. Okay. It was too late for those women to be admitted. Right? We've got to pay attention to us. That same thing is true for us. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss this thing that all of time has been spent culminating towards. It is going to be an amazing thing. We, we want to be those wise virgins. We have to be those wise, wise virgins. We want to be that bride waiting for our groom ready for his return, whether we know when it's coming or not. And we are encouraged over and over and over again to be faithful, to be ready, to be waiting for that glorious day where we can read that verse in Revelation one more time with confidence and we can say, let us, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So that is what I'm going to send you all home with tonight. That thought that says, let's go and let's make ourselves ready. So thank you for spending, perfect, it's 8 o'clock right now. Perfect timing. So thank you for joining me in this study. I hope that God was able to grant you something to help your walk. Thank you. You guys all have a good night. I love you all.